Amen. Powerful new hymn. Thank you, Pastor David, and thank you, Brother Brian, for recommending that hymn. I pray that through this study of the theology of the family has been a blessing to you, and, and that has been your prayer that you would have a Christian home. Uh, godly fathers, mothers, where it's a joy serving one another, loving one another. Amen. Well, we continue our study of the theology of the family today. If you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, today we're going to look at the theology of marriage, Genesis chapter 2. So we will look at the very beginning, and then we'll also look at many other texts as we examine what God has to say about marriage. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read starting in verse 18, and the word of the Lord says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man, the man, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds in the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Now, Lord, as we seek to examine, uh, Lord, this great institute that you created from the beginning of mankind, called marriage. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us, and that the words that I speak to your people today will be that which you have spoken, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's been much talk and debate over the years about external threats to our country, uh, whether it's China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. Uh, the threats out there abound. A most recent survey uh, amongst Americans found that cyber terrorism was considered the most or the greatest threat to our country's security and safety. And external threats to the United States are nothing new. They've been a reality since the very inception of our country. Uh, Up until the middle of the 19th century, Great Britain was considered the biggest existential threat to America. Uh, Then throughout our uh, country's history, we had conflicts uh, from Mexico, Germany, Japan, uh, then threats during the Cold War to modern-day terrorist threat threats. Now, while these threats are real, and we should not ignore them, there is one greater threat that has been ignored in our country throughout the last 100 years. This threat, left unchecked, will cause the demise of our nation. This threat will cause the utter breakdown and collapse of our society. 
This threat could be the very biggest threat to our nation, and very few people are talking about it. This threat is the danger of the destruction of the family. The very heartbeat of a nation, the fabric of a society, is simply the sum of all its families. You want to destroy a nation, destroy its families. Our country, in case you haven't noticed, is on the fast track to destruction. And it's not by external force, but by internal rot. Now, external threats are very real, and I'm not discounting those. We have open borders allowing enemies to invade our country, which is wrong. But think about this for a moment. Why do we have such wicked rulers who allow such evil to prevail upon our country? It all started in the family or lack thereof. And the very foundation of a family is marriage. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It is incumbent upon the church not to be silent on this matter, but to seek to vindicate the sanctity and the beauty of the marriage institution, while also seeking to build and promote flourishing marriages within the church. You see, brothers and sisters, from Genesis to Revelation, marriage is woven throughout Scripture as very precious to God. From the creation ordinance of marriage, which we just read in Genesis 2, to God illustrating his love for Israel in the Old Testament as a marriage, to Christ and the church as an illustration of marriage in the New Testament, to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Marriage is very important to God, and it ought to be precious, and it ought to be esteemed by us, held with sacredness and honor. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. God created marriage between one man and one woman and guess what? God is the creator of all things. He gets to set the rules. I believe the church has for too long held a low view of marriage. The church. You want to know how I can say that? When the true biblical institution of marriage is attacked, mangled, redefined, mocked, what do Christians do? What do churches do? What do pastors do? Exactly, that's what they do. They close their mouths. We need to raise our view of marriage in such a way that when we seek or when we see those who mock God by mocking the biblical marriage institution, institute, our zeal for Christ compels us to speak up and to speak in love and to call it what it is, sin, an abomination, as God calls it. Raising our view of marriage, friends, not only compels us to vindicate it in the public square, 
but it also compels us to cherish and to grow our own marriages. The church, sad to say, not only doesn't speak up when marriage is attacked, but marriages within churches is pretty much as bad as marriages in the culture. The church, sad to say, divorces at the same rate as the world. And friends, it does us no good to seek to advance the gospel when we have marriages in the church that are in shambles. Raising our view of marriage will encourage us to put in the time and the effort to sanctify our own marriages. Strong marriages build strong families. Strong families build strong churches. And strong churches build strong communities. Strong communities build strong cultures, which build strong countries. So today I want to cover sort of a broad view of marriage. So today we're going to look at the parameter of marriage, the perpetuity of marriage, the protection of marriage, and the purpose of marriage. So next week and the following weeks, haven't decided one, two, or three, uh, we're going to dive into the specific roles of marriage. We're not going to cover those today, uh, but we're going to dive into the duties of husbands and wives in the upcoming week or weeks. But first, let's look at the parameters of marriage. We just read it. How much clearer do you need it? When we talk about what is marriage or who created it or why was marriage created, we see here that first and foremost, Marriage was authored by God. The Lord created marriage. The Lord created Eve from Adam, and it says in the text that we read is that the Lord brought her to him. God did not give Adam the liberty to define what marriage was. God did not let Adam say, this is what I think marriage should be. No, God authored it. Therefore, he sets the parameters for what marriage is. And so we see here in the text that marriage is a monogamous relationship. Mono meaning one, one man, one woman for all time. That's what marriage is. It's said in the text, the two shall become one. And if you look at verse 23, this is actually spoken by Adam. He actually understood from the very beginning, he had the revelation of God of this monogamous relationship where he and his wife would become one. He says in verse 23, now this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You see, he had the revelation. He knew that this marriage was the two becoming one flesh. Therefore, any so-called marriage union outside these parameters must be publicly opposed. It's a mockery of the creator. This is a creation ordinance. This is a pre-fall ordinance. This is part of what God gave to all of mankind, whom we all come from Adam. Therefore, we all must look at these parameters that God set. Furthermore, Any sexual activity outside these parameters of a monogamous marriage is sin, and it too must also be addressed. Verse 24, 
where it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This implies sexual completeness. And again, God defines the rules, friends. So anything outside of this, uh, we must not just denounce it in our own little circles, because this is upon all of mankind. So anything outside of this must be publicly opposed. So that is the parameter for marriage. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time on that because it's so clear in the text. But it begs the question, was and is marriage only for a certain people for a certain time? And that's why I want to address the perpetuity of marriage. Is marriage, as God defines it in his word, is it perpetual? Meaning, is it for all time? Is it for all people? Is this monogamous institution a timeless truth? There seems to be some confusion upon this out there. You know, some people say, well, it just apply, you know, really applies to Christians and those who follow God because other people, you know, they don't, they don't believe the Bible. They don't follow God. So we shouldn't impose, as long as they're happy and they're not hurting somebody, we shouldn't impose our views upon others. Just let them do what they want to do as long as they're not hurting others, right? How many times have you heard some sort of argument like that? You can't force your morality on other people. Well, friends, all of that is absolutely foreign to the Word of God. According to the Word of God, the biblical definition of marriage and the parameter for the sexual ethics inside of marriage, listen to me, governs the entire human race in all places and in all time. Mankind does not have the liberty to define any other form of marriage or any other form of sexual ethics outside the bounds of a heterosexual marriage. All societies, in all places, in all time, must not only comply with, but also protect and guard what God has arranged within this marriage ordinance. God authored marriage in the garden. Jesus and Paul affirm it in the New Testament. And it permeates everywhere in between. It applied to all mankind at the garden. It was there before the Mosaic Law. And then it was expounded upon in the Mosaic Law. As I mentioned, Jesus affirmed it, as did Paul. We see very early on, after Genesis 2, we see that the world, in some form, acknowledges this heterosexual, monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. In Genesis chapter 20, we see a pagan king, Abimelech. We see him try to protect the ordinance of marriage. You know the account, right? When Abraham lies to the king, a, king, a pagan king of a land called Gerar, Abimelech. Abimelech takes Sarah, but God visits Abimelech in a dream and says, this is Genesis 20, verse 3. Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is married. This gives us a very early example of the sin of adultery before the Mosaic law. God would not let Abimelech take a woman who was already married. This implies that King Abimelech, at least 
in some form or fashion, understood God's law of marriage, the creation ordinance of marriage, and he sought to protect it. Then God codified the law of marriage in the moral law by giving the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is sort of the umbrella law for you must not commit any other sexual activity outside the confines of a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. Then he expands, God does, he expands upon the seventh commandment in Leviticus chapter 18. Turn there with me if you would. Leviticus 18. I think I can, my mic can go down just a, just a hair, Johnny. Don't mind. Leviticus 18. This whole chapter, God condemns very, uh, various sexual activities outside the confines of a heterosexual and monogamous marriage. Starting at verse 6 through 18, he condemns incest. And then verse 18, he condemns polygamy. Uh, verse 22, he condemns homosexuality. Verse 23, he condemns bestiality. Now these are God giving more details on what is allowed and what's not allowed and marriage is the only parameter by which sexual activity is allowed. And these lists, many people say, well, that's just for Israel. It's the Mosaic law. That's just for a space and a time. Some of these aren't repeated in the New Testament. So does that give us the freedom? Does that give the culture the freedom to have marriage in these other forms and have sexual relations in these other forms? Well, if that was the case, someone better tell God that uh, because he actually indicts all of the nations, the pagan nations, for committing these acts of abomination. And that's in verse 24. Look at uh, Leviticus 18, verse 24. After prohibiting all of these things outside of marriage, he says in verse 24, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations neither the native nor the alien who sojourns with you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all of these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among the people. Thus you are to keep my charge, that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. So friends, these sexual ethics, these 
uh, parameters of marriage were not solely for a place and location in time, but these were objective standards of morality that transcended all. This was why God said, don't do these abominations that I just listed for you. The pagan nations that are before you, they did all these things, and therefore he says, I have punished them. I have brought on its punishment, and the land has spewed them out because of all these abominations. So these marital ethics did not just apply to one nation and one time. It transcended all. The text tells us that the biblical sexual ethic of a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman is the only standard of truth given by the creator and sustainer of the world, for all time, for all people. Even Herod in the New Testament rebuked a pagan, or was rebuked by John the Baptist. Herod, a pagan king. John the Baptist rebuked him for marrying his brother's wife. This is found in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. And it indicates that it was an ongoing rebuke, the way that it's worded in the original language. It wasn't one rebuke from John the Baptist. It was an ongoing rebuke. He said, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, that's interesting. It is not lawful. Well, guess what? The Roman law didn't prohibit him from marrying his brother's wife. But he said, it's not lawful for you to have your your brother's wife. Excuse me. What law is he talking about? He's talking about God's law. Specifically, he is referencing Leviticus 18, verse 16. The Mosaic law prohibits laying with your brother's wife. This is another example of how the Old Testament laws and standards for marriage transcend time and place. And another example is Paul in his letter to the church of Corinth. Now, here's a church in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, made of Jews and Gentiles. He rebukes them for their immorality and says that someone in the church, quote, had his father's wife. In other words, his stepmom, okay? Paul rebukes him. Well, where'd Paul get this idea from? There's no blood relation there right? The verse, what he does is he pulls out from the Old Testament in the same chapter, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, strictly prohibited from being laying with your father's wife. Now, not to be confused with your mother, which was a blood relation, because that was in the verse before in verse 7, Leviticus 18, verse 7, shall not lay with your mother. But then verse 8 says, you shall not lay with your father's wife. So there's your stepmother, right? There's no blood relation there. Paul's rebuking a Jew and Gentile church for someone who was laying with his stepmom. These texts indicate to us the never-changing, never-compromising biblical sexual ethic and the parameters for the marriage covenant. It is perpetual throughout all human history, friends. And one final example that puts the nail on the LGBTQ coffin is this. When Jesus was asked about divorce, he affirms the marriage ordinance by quoting Genesis 2. This is found in Matthew verse chapter 19. Starting at verse 3, he says, 
or it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read? Now, when Jesus says, Have you not read? That was a rebuke upon them. That was almost mocking, right? You should know this. Have you not even read? That he who created them from the beginning, and then he quotes Genesis 2, made them male and female. Two genders. Verse 5. And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, Jesus says. He then says, What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. You see, I believe that he's referencing the marriage covenant with the two people themselves, but also the marriage covenant itself. God has joined two people, man, woman, together, let no man separate. So we see clearly, friends, from Genesis to Revelation, as marriage is defined by God, it is perpetual throughout all time. Well, next we need to talk about protecting marriage. Because marriage is a creation ordinance and part of God's cultural mandate for all of mankind, all societies are not only obligated to comply with this marriage ordinance, but all societies everywhere are obligated to protect the sacred institution. God has established three spheres of authority on earth. Each of them have a duty to protect the creation ordinance of the marriage. So God established these three spheres of authority, the church, the state, and the family. Each have their own um, sovereign spheres of authority. They can overlap. We've talked about that in other sermons. I won't get into that. But each of those sovereign spheres, God has placed an authority upon, and each, each of those are obligated to protect the marriage covenant, the marriage creation ordinance. First, the church. The church obviously is to protect this. How? In proclaiming the truth and by addressing sin through church discipline. So as John the Baptist proclaimed in the public square, the church is to proclaim in the public square uh, to defend and to vindicate this great marriage covenant. So next, the church or the state, the civil government, the civil magistrate is bound by God and his word to protect the marriage ordinance. Now, there's much confusion out there on the role of the state in regard to marriage. Many conservative Christians that are lawmakers, many of them I know, believe that the state has no role to play, that the state should not legislate morality, or it would encroach upon a person's liberty. I've heard this come from lawmakers' mouths that are Christian uh, by profession, that are conservative, that, that they believe, well, it's not the government's role to decide what marriage is, but as long as others aren't hurting other people, if they want to get married, that's not the government's job. You're starting to become a bigger government, they would say, than the founding fathers 
had in mind. So again, much confusion, because my answer to that is, by what standard? By what standard are you saying that the role of the government is not to protect the ordinance of marriage? Because they can never point to a scripture, they can never point to God's word to say, no, that's not the government's role. The government's ultimate role in a broad sense is to punish evil and reward good. But my friends, what is the standard of evil? The seventh commandment. Is it evil to break the seventh commandment? See, the problem that we have is many churches don't preach upon the seventh commandment. Therefore, you have lawmakers that go to water down churches that believe it's okay to have sex outside of marriage so long as it's consensual. That's become the new standard of morality. As long as two whoever, men, women, whatever, as long as they're consenting, it's not the government's role to say they can or cannot be married under law. I beg to get differ. God's law begs to, get, uh, begs to differ. From the very beginning of our country, the founding fathers beg to differ. Historically, there have been laws on the books in each state against breaking the seventh commandment. There were laws against committing adultery. There were sodomy laws. There were polygamy laws. And some of those still abound. So what is the standard of truth? It is incumbent upon societies through the civil magistrate to protect this beautiful creation ordinance of marriage. And it isn't something. We talk about the destruction of families, families that no longer honor God, families that raise kids to to be autonomous creatures and do their own thing and let them go their own way. And then they get into positions of power. And then they begin to legislate, not according to the objective standards of truth, but according to their own pragmatic way of thinking. Think about where our society has become since the Supreme Court overturned or essentially made same-sex legal, right? It's been, what, 10 years in that case? Think about how our society has exponentially gone into a downward spiral since that happened. And think about the church. Ever since then, more evangelical churches, more evangelical leaders have capitulated to the idea that sex, as God declares it, is, you know, it's okay if we do other stuff. We see this more and more and more. Matter of fact, I saw this just a couple of weeks ago. I mentioned contemporary Christian music. Um, There's not much good out there in that, by the way. Uh, You see so many of these influential leaders that are uh, compromising in this issue. Just a couple of weeks ago, the contemporary Christian industry had their annual Dove Awards. Okay, the Dove Awards is where they give out these awards for the, the best contemporary Christian artists, best song, you know, that sort of thing. I grew up in my Christian walk on contemporary Christian music. I remember a lot of the old stuff, uh, and it was decent theologically speaking. Now it's garbage. But in the Dove Awards just two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, uh, the lead singer for Cademan's Call, if you remember that, that artist, I'm aging myself. I listen to Cademan's Call all the time. The lead singer... 
went, he's a male, went to the Dove Awards in drag, in a dress. And from the stage, laid his claim as an ally to the LGBT community. And not only that, you can see a picture around the internet where he's posed with an outward gay Christian artist and that Christian drag artist who has songs on iTunes that are at the top of the charts in the Christian category. In the Christian category. The contemporary Christian music is a problem, friends, because most people are looking to that industry for its theology. They're looking to that industry. When you have these leaders that people idolize and then they make music, people are looking to them And then when you see them outspoken about things that God calls an abomination, it's no wonder why we see so many churches at best saying nothing about marriage, at worst going along with the culture. They're being formed by the culture instead of us as Christians forming the culture. We need a great reformation in this area. I don't know where I was. I wasn't even in my notes. Um, Yes, so the state is obligated, but not only state, the family. It's obvious the family is this another sphere where it is obligated to protect marriage. Now, how does the family do that? Obviously, ordering your family biblically is one way, and then raising your children to grow, appreciate, and defend the institution of marriage, preparing them to have a marriage that will flourish, preparing them to be a wife who honors and and loves the Lord as she honors and submits to her husband and teaching your sons to be the prophet, the priest, and the protector of his home, to lead in the spiritual things of his home. That's how we protect families. That's how families protect the ordinance of marriage. Finally, I want to cover the purposes of marriage, the purpose of marriage. I see God give three purposes for marriage and then one greater heavenly purpose for marriage. The first purpose for marriage is that so that man would not be alone. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. For you men that are married, can I get a yes and an amen to that? Because I know how alone I would be if I did not have my wife by my side. It is not good for Mark to be alone. So praise God that he made a helper suitable for me. Women just have a a knack. Wives have a knack to make everything so beautiful. Uh, Wives have a knack to find things that I can't find. Uh, They are just amazing creatures. And they're so beautiful. I mean, us guys, I mean, we're horrendous to look at. But our wives are so beautiful to look at. It is not good for man to be alone. Second, the purpose of marriage was to procreate. The very first command uh, recorded in Scripture to mankind is what? Be fruitful and multiply. That actually came before we learn of the marriage ordinance in Genesis chapter 2. God gives us in chapter 1 where he made man and told them be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1 verse 28. 
So one of the purposes for marriage is to procreate. It's called the, the uh, procreation mandate, to, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, to populate the earth. That word in the Hebrew literally means to swarm. God wants us to get married and to have as many kids as he would give us, to multiply, to fill the earth. I often joke about that when people see my 900 kids and I say, that command I took seriously, or I took it as a challenge. Uh, but we should be blessed whether, whether God gives us one or nine or 900, like some of the patriarchs. We should be thankful for the children that God has blessed us with. Another reason uh, for marriage, another purpose, is to avoid sexual immorality. One of the blessings of marriage is that God uses it to prevent us from being sexually immoral. This is a beautiful thing that God has given us. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, uh, Paul says, Now concerning the things which wrote, which, uh, about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He says in verse 5, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again. When he says come together in an in a intimate way, so that Satan will not tempt you because you lack your lack of self-control. When a husband embraces himself in his wife's love and the wife likewise in her husband, sexual immorality is constrained. And that is a blessing of marriage. So those are three purposes. However, there's one greater purpose. And here's where I'll end. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. God reveals this mystery of this greater purpose for the church. Ephesians chapter 5. You know, the enemy has sought to attack and destroy this creation ordinance of marriage from the beginning. Why? Why such an attack on the family. Why such an attack on marriage? He not only attacks marriages, he attacks marriage. Why? Because he came to steal, kill, and destroy? Yes, amen. Because he hates image bearers of God? Yes, amen. But ultimately, Satan seeks to destroy marriages and the ordinance of marriage because of this great truth. God's ultimate purpose in marriage is to display the union and relationship between Christ and his church. Displaying the gospel to a lost and fallen world. And Satan hates the gospel. When the enemy can distort marriage, he can distort the gospel. He hates the gospel. Marriage was created by God to show the world a visible picture of Christ's sacrificial love for the church 
Christ's care for the church and Christ's love and submission, excuse me, and the church's love and submission to Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here it is, verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Here, the Holy Spirit through Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands as what? As the church submits to Christ. And husbands are to sacrificially love and cherish their wives as Christ loves and cherishes the church. He calls this a mystery in verse 32. The mystery was alluded to in the Old Testament, how God portrayed his relationship to Israel as a marriage. But now it's fully realized and fully revealed. and It's almost as if it's blossomed to give us the true beauty and fragrance in the New Testament. That God created marriage ultimately to visibly display the union between Christ and his bride, his church. This is so wonderful. It's such a beautiful truth. So therefore, we all the more need to seek First and foremost, for our own marriages to reflect the union of Christ in his church, but also to seek to vindicate it from those who would pervert it. You see, friends, when a husband is walking in obedience to Christ, being the provider, the protector, and the priest of his home, loving his wife, cherishing his wife, being willing to lay down his life for his wife, what he does is he gives a visual picture of Christ's sacrificial love for and headship of the church. Conversely, when a husband is apathetic, selfish, unloving, or even domineering, he declares a false gospel to the world. He declares a Christ that does not love or cherish the church. When a wife submits to and respects her husband as she submits to the Lord. She visibly shows to the world how the church submits to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. 
Conversely, when she does not submit to her husband, she declares a false gospel to the world. And as it says in Titus 2 verse 5, the word of God is dishonored. To those of you who are married, what does your marriage show the world? What message does your marriage portray to your children? How aligned is your marriage to that of Christ and the church? This must, friends, this must be primary if we are to ever seek to advance the gospel. So in conclusion, I want to reemphasize God's view of marriage and the primacy he puts upon marriage. It's no coincidence that Jesus' first miracle was where? At a wedding celebration. Jesus also compared the kingdom of heaven a number of times to that of a, a marriage or that of a wedding feast. When we consider the great truths of marriage, friends, its origin, its purpose, its symbolizing of Christ's union in the church, we look forward to the ultimate marriage consummation, and that is of the great wedding feast of the Lamb given to us in Revelation 19, verse 6, where it says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let's rejoice and be glad and give glory to him because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has been prepared herself. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. As we consider these great truths of marriage, brothers and sisters, friends, I want to ask you have you been invited to be part of the greatest marriage of all, the marriage supper with the Lamb? Have you been invited to the great marriage feast in the future we see in the text? This invitation is yours today, but it can only be accepted, friends, on these terms. Through repentance of sin and faith. Faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. And not trusting in any of your righteousness or any of your good deeds. Unless you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, young people, unless you're clothed in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that you cannot earn, but is imputed to you by faith, you will not inherit eternal life in heaven. You will not take part in the future marriage lamb, marriage supper of the lamb. So I want to invite you to this great supper by coming to Christ and taking part in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, for the importance that you put upon marriage, 
Father, we see it through all Scripture. God, help us. Lord, help me to raise my view of marriage. Help us, God, to seek that our own marriages would flourish. For us husbands, Lord, I pray that we would repent of the areas of our lives where we are not loving our our wives as Christ loved the church, that we're not cherishing, protecting spiritually, physically, emotionally our wives as Christ cherishes, protects, feeds the church. Lord, I pray for the wives, Lord, uh, represented here, God, any areas of their lives, Lord, where they have fallen short of showing the world the picture of church, the church's love and submission to Christ. And Lord, as we take a deeper dive in the upcoming weeks of our duties as husbands and wives, uh, Lord, help us. We need your grace, God. We absolutely cannot have a gospel-centered, flourishing marriage without your grace. Father, I pray as the hymn we sung that we would build Christian homes, that we would be salt and light in the world, knowing, Lord, we are not perfect, nor ever will be. But you give the grace. You supply the grace when needed. I thank you, Lord, for my marriage. I thank you for the marriages represented here. God, for you are pleased with marriage. Pray that you would build us up in the faith. Help us by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name.